from Kurtco Media. Hello, friends and fellow car lovers. Some time ago, when we were still figuring out what this show would be, we invited Andy Cohen to be one of our first guests. Due to these episodes sometimes being released out of chronological order, Andy's episode was delayed. And I'm very sad to say that in the time since this recording, Andy passed away. But we here at Cars That Matter feel this episode serves as a fitting tribute to Andy and his deep passion and joy for the automobile. We want to share this episode with listeners as he tells us how cars literally shaped his life. It's a joy I think we can all relate to. Drive on, Andy. This is Cars That Matter. I'm Bill Curtis. And I'm Robert Ross. And this is Cars That Matter. Part of the Cars That Matters equation has more to do with the people that own them and drive them and love them than it does about the cars themselves. That's where my guest, Andy Cohen, is really just exactly the kind of person we want to talk to, to get a sense of, of how cars that matter have affected him and how, in many ways, he's been one of the arbiters of taste that has helped to determine which cars do matter. Andy is president of Beverly Hills Motoring Accessories, a company that began in 1976, back at a time when, well, uh, cars were not quite the uniform transportation pods that they are today. So we want to talk to Andy about a lot of those things. Andy, welcome to the show, and uh, we look forward to learning a little bit about your cars that matter. Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, I was, at a young age, 20 years old, living in New York, Long Island, to be interested in cars at that time was very looked down upon. What part of Long Island did you grow up on? Great. And, and, and what year are you talking? Let's say I graduated high school in 64. So, so in 64, you think that people looked down on someone who was a car aficionado? In New York. Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah. You know, over at uh, Roosevelt Raceway and near Roosevelt Field where they had all those great straightaways and we could see what our cars could really do. And someone had to give somebody, you know, some cute girl the pink slip of our car before we showed off the new engine we had put into a car that would otherwise have gone very slowly and then uh, surprised everybody with the power behind our hot rod. Yeah, uh, I would bet that you ruled the roost back then. Well, I... I did what I could. Everybody remembers their first car, the ones they saved up for or even built from scratch. For Andy, he talked his father into buying a 64 Pontiac Tempest with a 326 cubic inch V8 and a three-speed stick. But then... Six months later, it was middle of the year, they came out with the GTO. And I'm thinking, God, why didn't they have that when I got my dad to buy this car? So I had this scheme. He was one away for the weekend with my mother to Florida, and I said to my, me and my friends, we're going to make this Tempest into a GTO. So I went to a wrecking yard. I bought a 389 cubic inch motor, because that's what they were, from a Grand Prix, and I proceeded to concoct this story that I was riding on Northern Boulevard. I hit a rock, broke the oil pan. Damn to, it if the engine didn't fall out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so then... So I had the scheme. I went and got the motor from the wrecking yard, went to put it in. It was completely different than the GTO engine, and it took four months to get 
everything all done. I had to buy a new hood. I had to custom make headers. I mean, everything was different. My dad was taking a bus and very mad at me. I just said New York wasn't a place for me. I didn't like the cold. I didn't like the weather. I didn't like crowds. I didn't like anything. So I said Southern California is it. So So when did you move out here? I moved out here in 67. I moved out here in 1967. I didn't, like I said, I didn't know anyone. I didn't even know which way to go. So I got off the plane, got on Century Boulevard, went to the 405 freeway and said, do we go north or south? I don't know, because I didn't know anyone. I turned left and went north. I got to the top of Sepulveda Pass, going down into the San Fernando Valley. It was September. It got 30 degrees hotter as I went down into the valley. And I loved it, because the hotter the better. So I went down the hill, got off of Ventura Boulevard, saw Holiday Inn, and kind of made that my center for a few years. What a great story. I, yeah. I don't even and, know if that's repeatable. These days. And Robert, he moved out here in 67. That's, that's right at the, man, that's when you wanted to be in the car scene. So it begs the question, Andy, what was your first car when you got out here? My first car that I built, actually, was a 1940 Ford Woody that already had a 327 engine in it. And... I actually have restored it three times. I still have it. It's black and it has Corvette motor, independent suspension. It drives drives like my Maserati. Fantastic. And so I got the combination, the combination of, of all those things. And I actually bought my first Ferrari in 1978. It was a 308. One of my friends who I bought it from was a Ferrari dealer in New Mexico. And he said, Andy, are you interested in buying the Daytona Spider? And I said, sure. Tell me about it. This was um, in 1978. It was owned by a Prince Turkey, who I think is still around, or his predecessors are, in Newport Beach. It was a red Daytona Spider. A real one, not one of those fake streaming jobs. No, 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 it's a real one. And in fact, talk about, like, before the Internet. The only way I could find out if it was a real Daytona Spider was send a telex to the Ferrari factory. And then three years later, I found out that that car was the first Daytona Spider made. What a fantastic car. That's one of the cars of everybody's dreams. I mean, the Daytona Spider is an iconic thing, and boy, it certainly created a sensation such that there were so many sawzalls taken to the roofs of perfectly good Daytona coupes. That Yeah, they, I, ruined, a, they ruined a lot of Daytona coupes. They sure did. And there were only 122 Daytona Spiders That's for right. all years. And it's still one of the most sought-after valuable cars. Of course, I sold it a long time ago. Well, those are the stories. That'll be another show, Cars That Matter, that we wish we still had. But uh, I think that's, that's a part and parcel of the process, too. You know, it's, we're just custodians of these things. And I think the real, the real uh, uh, enjoyment is, uh, is being able to kind of cycle through a, an evolution of cars in our stable. Unless you're one of these guys that has the, the, the resources and, the, and the, the, the kind of mental wherewithal to encompass a, a garage full of hundreds of cars. It's, uh, it's too much of a good thing. And I think being able to cherish and prize that Daytona Spider and a couple of other special personal examples, that's what car ownership is really all about. What, what was your first special car, Robert? Oh, gosh. My first special car was the first one that I could afford. That was quite a triumph in and of itself. Uh, not a triumph, literally. It was actually a BMW 1600. 
And uh, back wow, when nobody, nice start. Well, nobody knew what those things were. They were just little tin shit boxes back in the early 70s, but they were quite a handful for a guy learning the whole essence of vehicle dynamics, handling dynamics. What does it take to actually make a car do certain things? And those That's, were manual back then, right? They were all manual, and, uh, you know, you really had to work hard to, to make that thing go fast. You know, the old saying, you know, you can have more fun making a slow car go fast than a fast car go slow. And uh, it certainly holds true with something like that little four-banger BMW. Would you want that car again today? You know, I actually tried to find it. Bill, I'm sorry I sold the damn thing, but you know, when you're a college student and you're kind of starving, you have to do what you have to do. Actually, I had different priorities. I sold it to buy a stereo. I remember the guy that came to buy it. I was trying to sell it for $1,200, exactly what I paid about maybe a year before. So this guy comes to my mother's house where I'm staying over the summer, and he was kind of a shifty-looking character. I'm not sure where he was from. If I had to guess, I'd say someplace like Transylvania. And uh, after talking a little bit of negotiation, he says, uh, I'll give you $600 and my monkey. I said, <laughs> oh, boy, I, I love monkeys and stuff, but I'm in college and I got a roommate and I, I, I'd rather have the 1200 bucks." I figure it was like an organ grinder monkey or something like that, but uh, needless to say, we did a cash transaction and the BMW went away. I've been looking for it ever since. And is the monkey still around? You're still feeding it? I'm not. (laughs) UQM363, if anybody ever sees a black California plate out there with those numbers, please let me know. uh, My first car Ah. was a 1964 Buick Wildcat convertible with air conditioning, 445 four-barrel. This thing was about as long as your Rhode city Island. block yeah, and looked like it couldn't get out of its own way. And we used to fit, oh, I don't know, nine people in the car. This car looked like maybe it could top out around 40, 44 miles an hour. And we used to take this to Roosevelt Raceway, and there was a long straightaway there, not too far from where Charles Lindbergh took off. And uh, this car could not be beat. It, uh, you know what a, a 445 four-barrel can do. You could probably uh, make a Mack truck go at about 100 miles an hour. You get it going, and it's great. The problem is stopping it, but that's a whole different set of set of issues. Well, that was uh, sometimes the best thing was not to stop because you actually didn't want to face the person you had you had beaten because not only would they not give you their car, but they would not let you leave on two legs. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that's the that's Long Island for you. But. Uh, boy, if I could find that car again. That's why I brought it up, Robert. There was so much personality to those cars. There was so much soul to it. It really developed a kind of an emotion that's rare today in the kind of cars you can buy new. Yes, and actually the first new car that I bought when I got it in 68 was I ordered a 68 Oldsmobile 442 convertible, all black. And that was blessed. That was fun. That was, that was a fun a car. Great car. And th- those were cruising Van Nuys Boulevard days. Like you said, girls will never everyone's cruising, talking, having a good time. It Beach was, Boys songs. I mean, that, that yeah, helped, was, that helped was, bring me here, too. What was it? It was it was a California dream for me, which still exists, by the way. You've, you've been here for, for your whole California. No, 24 years. 24 I, years. only thing I regret is not moving here sooner. Andy has a long history of hosting car shows. From the Rodeo Drive Concord to the Malibu Cars and Coffee. But his success in hosting such events became a double-edged sword. 
with increased popularity came increased attendance. Until finally... It got too crowded. Do you actually filter the cars that get to show at your event? At Trankus, you couldn't because it's three entrances. People come in. Every local cars and coffee in Southern California has been shut down after a while. A supercar Sunday. Sure. That, that just, was a great event. We had great to, event. Uh, so you start used up. to bring great cars there, yeah. but then all of a sudden it starts attracting everything else. And pretty right. soon it's like uh, flies on a, on a dead cow. You can't, yes. you can't, you can't <laughs> swat them off fast enough. And the merchants get upset because oh, they're taking yeah. their parking. Nobody's spending any money. They're just there to ogle and whatnot. Right. And so, so I found a place in Malibu, unnamed. I'm not going to name it. It's by the beach. And I do it <laughs> once a month. And... Um, don't even try to find it. But, Bill, I'll tell you later where it is. There so, you go. So the most successful event you could throw would be one where nobody came. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. But, but guess what? Who is going to be there? The folks that are going to be there are some people with some really interesting cars. And that kind of gets back to my original point that it's not just about cars that matter, but the people that go with the cars. Because really... Without being able to share them with other people, like minds, enthusiasts, people to have something to talk about, uh, it would be a very solitary hobby indeed. So if, if you don't mind for a minute, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, for our listeners, if, if you take a breath, inhale really hard, I promise we'll be back before you have to exhale. Hi, my name is Chris Porter from When Last I Left. The show you've been listening to is sponsored by ProudSource Water. Not only do they distribute their water in these stylish and recyclable aluminum bottles, but the water itself is sustainably sourced and naturally filtered. ProudSource Water believes in the ripple effects, that one person's actions can impact the world for the better. You do your part, and I do mine, and maybe we come out better than we started. So go to ProudSourceWater.com to learn more about the company, their vision, and their water. Leave the world better than you found it. Drink ProudSource Water. On medicine, we're still practicing. Join Dr. Stephen Tabak and Bill Curtis for real conversations with the medical professionals who have their finger on the pulse of healthcare in the modern world. Available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Produced by Kurt Co. Media. Okay, you can exhale. We're back. Ah, well, we are back, and I'm basically barely catching my breath because I'm thinking about all these great cars that Andy's owned. And talk about modest. You'd never even know it. You've owned all these great cars. Is there something on the radar? Is there something you'd still like to get your hands on? I think one of two cars. The next car is either going to be a 97 Porsche Twin Turbo. Any mm. of the air-cooled Porsches are great cars to buy because from... 99, they went to the water-cooled cars, right. sure. and they're not so, enthusiast cars. Absolutely the Porsche true. was built from the 356 on its air-cooled theme. So I think if someone buys a 95, 96, any year, Any of the nine, Porsche, last 993s, fantastic. Right. So I just got for a client last week a 97 black, black twin turbo. I fell in love. So that's, that's on my yeah. list. And then, to me, the ultimate modern car of all time is the Carrera GT. I just think that's the number one coolest thing. It's a V10. It's an F1 engine. It sounds great. It looks great. I think it's drop-dead gorgeous. And I think that's a car that's going to really go up in value. 
And We're, by the way, it's stick shift and it's all shift. analog. It's no all analog. funny business there. This car is actually a car that a car person who actually grew up stirring right. a gearbox can actually understand. So and I appreciate. think that's a really exciting car to drive. And I think that we're seeing a little bit of kickback to this hybrid stuff, even in these cars. At the same time, Porsche came out with a 918 a few years ago. Right. McLaren came out with a P1. Yep. And the LaFerrari. And LaFerrari came out. So now what I'm seeing is a few years later, the technology was not perfected. They made those cars. So now you're seeing these cars with software. Software. First of all, the guy that's had all these cars really doesn't want to have to plug his car in like a Prius or a Tesla, really not. Right. So even with these cars plugged in, the batteries go bad. The battery systems are a hundred to two hundred thousand dollars. So now I'm seeing a backlash on these cars. McLaren P ones came out there a million dollars, they went up to two, 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 three, two, four, two, five. Now they're down a million dollars because of that. And the same thing happening to 918s. People thinking ahead, what's going to happen in 20 years? The car companies, because they wanted to be green, came out with this new technology that wasn't perfected. Sure. It's cutting what, edge. What's the year of the career that you're looking for? Courage GT is 2005. They made, they made Courage GTs 2004 and 2005. So in 05, you still had to wear your glasses to find the controls and switches that looked more like they bought them at Radio Shack than anything else, right? Absolutely. That was a yeah. great car. I, I went on the launch of that car. It was right outside of Berlin uh, back in 2004 with Porsche, and they flew us over there, and we went on to a secret testing ground that used to be a part of the East German government. It was an airstrip. It was so secret that there was no GPS tracking. And we had an opportunity to take that thing out and do some flat runs. And I was a passenger of Walter Rural, who was arguably Porsche's greatest rally driver in history. And that guy drove with the deftness and the, and the skill of a, of a school bus driver. He couldn't get flummoxed by a thing. And we had that car up well over 205 miles an hour and then took it on the circuit and he made it dance. In the hands of, you know, most folks, it's, it's, dare I say, a handful. But it's an incredibly capable car, Andy. And it uh, required a little bit of a feathering of the clutch because it's a very finicky uh, and light flywheel, as you know. That's why it's so problematic when it gets into the wrong hands. But I think in the scheme of things, that Carrera GT is probably the most exciting car that Porsche made in the 21st century. Without question, Ever. the most exciting car they've made. Yeah, so again, there's all these cars that are super, that are unique, that are fun to drive. And listen, if you're going to buy a collector car, why not buy something that's also a good investment? Absolutely. And uh, Porsche supports their cars, you know, in terms of their preserving and understanding and appreciating their heritage. I think more than a lot of companies that support the history as much as the future. You know, you talk about cars that matter, and it's really in many ways as much about the sound and the feeling as it is about the look and the provenance. A V12 engine is special. And, of course, now we've got V10s and then the venerable V8s, like the V8 you've got in your Woody. I mean, that small block Chevy has sort of been the building block of car fantasies from the very beginning. That's sound. I, I just think the sound, well, like it, you said. Well, is a car transportation or something else? Car is transportation for most people. Okay, and you're right. It is transportation, and they just go to A to B, and they don't care. But 
what you have talked about for all these years and got people excited about is something that's more than transportation. So whatever the percentage of people that are happy with their Toyota and and Mazda and just normal cars to get them from point A to point B, that's the majority. We're the minority. I don't know how big the minority is, but we're the minority. So just for a second, for the people who haven't experienced what a car really is, which can be a reflection of your own personality, a little bit of soul to it, an experience that actually makes the getting there more important than being there. Tell us the experience you have when driving a really special car. It's interesting. Someone told me once, people buy cars for how they look at it. Why does it feel better when you're in a 30-mile-an-hour zone, but you're in a supercar that can do 200 miles an hour? What is it that makes that feel special? Just the ability that you can do it. We do live in Southern California, and luckily, there are a lot of places here that you can do that. Interesting. And, and but, of you, course, you would never consider such No, no, thing. no, no. I would never think about it. And, you know, of course, it's not even just the zero to 60, all the statistics, the, the, the measurements become irrelevant because ultimately what happens is it becomes an emotional relationship that you forge with these cars. It becomes a thing, an object that elicits emotions that aren't quantifiable necessarily. It's certainly not justifiable. There's no way to say that, you know, to, to argue rationally that one car is better than the next because you like the way the, the fender line moves or the way the, you know, the way the seat grabs you or the fit and finish of a particular piece of trim. These are things that become extremely personal relationships in the same way that you might prefer thus and such a brand of uh, a suit and maybe, maybe even encapsulates a period of time. And that's why collector cars are fascinating because they take us back in time. You look at a, I don't care what it is, you look at a 66 Mustang Fastback, you look at a GTO that Andy was talking about or that Daytona Spider, the Ferrari, all of these things take us back to a point in time that resonates in a way that no new car possibly can. Of course, the good news is that new cars eventually become old cars. And boy, it's funny how that happens fast. I look back on cars that I remember buying new and I realize now, my God, that thing's 20 years old. Boy, wasn't it something then? And guess what? It's even more of something now. One of my most favorite cars of all time was the 275 GTB4 Ferrari because I think it just... Oh, boy. So, so nothing better. Right. So it just looks so right, doesn't it? It looks it's brutal. from every angle. It's brutal, and yet it's elegant. It's refined. It's like a thug in a tuxedo. I mean, it just it has everything. It's almost bursting at the seams, the way those fender lines kind of bulge, and the, the gills on the side, those covered headlights, that duck tail in the back, kind of arrogant, sticking up with that spoiler. It's, uh, it's what an amazing car. Right, so I did see one of those, and it was dark blue with. Oh, uh, it was dark blue with tan, with maybe twenty something thousand original miles. Good heavens! So it ended up being a friend of mine. Ended up. And you bought that car? I oh bought it my from. god, Andy, you're my hero. So that was that was amazing, and that's when I got completely engrossed in the Ferrari culture. And this was like, this was like in the early '90s when they weren't. Quite that expensive. They were marginally affordable. They were marginally affordable. So then in in 1990, I walked into Hollywood Sports Cars, which was the Ferrari dealer. Still in business then, and they were the ones. They were the dealer since 1960. They were the oldest Ferrari dealer actually in the country. And I went in there, and they had a short wheelbase California Spider. And that was owned by James Coburn, the actor. 
that he bought almost new. So at the time, this is 1990, I said, well, this is the most gorgeous car I've ever seen in my life. I bought the car. Did you get a deal? It was $200,000, which is a lot of money in 1990. It's a lot of money then, but we won't even ask how much they're right. worth now. I know they made 50 of the uh, long wheel bases. How many of the short wheel bases did they make? About 50. the same? Yeah, 50. Yeah, so. And this was kind of a little special because it was James Coburn, sure. Hollywood legend, not Steve McQueen, but you mm, know, still, yeah. still a pretty famous guy. And the reason he sold it is because he was, had arthritis and he couldn't God shift it. bless him. God bless him. <laughs> <laughs> So I took the car, needed to be restored, but it was drivable, it was fine. So I had a guy that detailed my cars forever. He detailed, he waxed, he cleaned. He said, Andy, I want to restore this car for you. And I said, Jeff, you never restored a car before. Why would I let you do it? I know this guy to do the engine. I know this guy to do paint. I know this guy to do that. So he talked me into it. So he did it. It took a year to do it. And I entered Pebble Beach in 1992. And a week before, he called me up. He said, Andy, I'm not going with you to Pebble Beach, and I'm never talking to you again. And I said, why? He said, doing this project for a year, it ruined my life. So I'm never talking to you again. So I said, well, I paid you to do the work, right? He said, yeah, no, it's not you. It's me. You made me crazy. I'm done. So I That's went. That's what you used to say to all your girlfriends, right? It's right. not you, it's me. That's right. It's not you, it's me. So I went to Pebble Beach, um, 1992, and he wasn't there uh, to help me do it. But it was the most thrilling, thrilling, thrilling. Actually, except for my three kids being born, the most amazing experience of my life was showing a car. And I actually won a prize. Boy, few experiences beat the thrill of winning a car show award, especially at the Pebble Beach Concorde d'Elegance. But achieving recognition as serious as that got me thinking about where Andy's California journey really began. Well, Andy, you're killing me now with curiosity. What happened to the Cali Spider? The Cali Spider. I sold it. Okay, so I had, I paid $200,000 for it. That was a lot of dough back then. Put 100000 in it. Yeah. So I had 300000 and a few years later, someone came and offered me a million eight. So was it a rich guy? Yeah, six huh? times, six oh, times I what I had in it. Nobody would have guessed they're now $15 million cars. I mean, who'd have thunk? Right. So, so then the next thing that happened is I sold it to a, a very well-known collector named Bruce Lussman in Denver, Colorado. And he had it four or five years. And he sold it to RM Auctions. For their factory auction, first one oh, in, 2008, yeah. in 2008. Yeah, I remember that. So there was a guy there named Chris Evans who was like the Howard Stern of mm-hmm. the UK, radio guy like that. That's right. And he got offered to buy the car for $6 million because by then I didn't own it anymore. He had sold it to RM Auctions. So he said to RM Auctions, no, I'm not interested in buying it. He went to the auction, had a lot of drinks, and bought it for $11 million. Or the, the same car. Same oh, good car. heavens. Right, so he right, paid right. double for the car he passed on earlier. And what, what, right. I'm sorry. What year had you invested the 300000 1992. And what year did it go for $11 million? 2008. So now the same car is for sale for $20 million. Crazy. So you did well, 
and screwed the pooch all at the same time. Yeah. Well, no. you know, they say, uh, I guess, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the part about pigs getting slaughtered, but it would have been nice to maybe hold on a little bit. But who knew? Who okay. knew any of these cars would be anything but old used cars? Yeah. No and, regrets. And that's exactly true. And I think that's part of the, the magic. I don't know. Of I being, got a few regrets when it comes to cars, Robert. Well, you know, I, I sold a few cars before it was you, appropriate. You know, I know. You, you, you absolutely you have to. And the one and and the bigger regrets are the ones you didn't buy when you had a chance. I think we've all got those stories. But I think the great thing about being old enough to remember these cars when they were, if not young, we'll say younger, is the fact that they were sort of they were accessible. You could actually acquire them. They were they were not thick on the ground, but there were enough of them. There was enough critical mass that you could actually bring these things into your life. You could enjoy them, you could sell them, make some money, and move on to something else. Now, it's it's more of a speculator's game, but I think, uh, thankfully, there are still a lot of enthusiasts out there with substantial resources and even greater passion to kind of keep that, well, I that, think, that yeah, flame I think alive. That at any level now, there are cars you could buy that you could drive, enjoy, and they will appreciate so well, think, that, that leads to the obvious question then. I mean, I, I know we don't have a crystal ball in the middle of this podcast studio. I kind of wish we did because I'd like to see some things in there. But one of the questions I always like to ask people who are kind of in the know like you, Andy, what's on the horizon? I mean, are, are there some cars that are poised to become kind of sudden collectibles? Well, I Not think, that I expect you to share that secret if you have no, one. No, 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 Robert, <laughs> do you mean new cars? or? or? Well, no, not necessarily no, not new. Cars. No, something that might be old. You know, obviously we're thinking 80s, 90s, maybe even late 70s. I think there are a lot of cars, depending on your budget, that you can buy that will go up in value. I think one of the biggest ones, well, one of the ones for the masses of 911, Porsche 911. Sure. Because they made a million Porsche 911s yeah. over the years. Yeah. And there are cars you can buy forty, fifty thousand dollars and pick the right one, they're gonna go up. If you're talking about something really special, Cobras are special. Two eighty nine and yeah. four twenty seven Cobras, they made three hundred four twenty sevens and six hundred 289s, I think. Right. And Carroll Shelby was the Enzo Ferrari of the United States. He sure was. And and he was a colorful guy. He made amazing cars. And the 289 Cobra now today is $800,000. They'll all be $2 million. 427s around that, they'll be $3 million. So there's still, if you have enough money to do that, there's speculation. But if you don't have that much money, which most people don't, there's cars you can buy. If you want a Ferrari, you buy a 550 Marinello. That is... Very interesting car and kind of the last of the Mohicans, the last of the real, you know, almost the analog uh, V12s. Right. So it's a V12. It's a manual gated transmission. Yeah, good-looking car. Good-looking car. It's fast. It has air conditioning. Yeah. It handles really well. Yeah. So a car like that three years ago was $70,000. Now they're up. They're up now in the six figures now. Yeah. yeah. Now it's yeah. 120, 130. Yeah. The Italian Camaro. Is the secret that someone should check to see how many of these things were made to give themselves Absolutely. an idea of whether or not it's going to go up in value? Absolutely. That's part of it. So part of it is how many were made from 1948 to 1973. Ferraris, they only made 10,000 cars total. That's right. And that's five minutes daily production now. 
I've looked up how many cars are made today. It's oh like my gosh, hundred and fifty thousand a day or something. Is there some way to estimate how many cars might be left? Let's go back to the the GTO that your father uh, missed by six months. There are ways because there are all these clubs talking about Pontiac. There, they have something called Pontiac Historical Society, where they have all the numbers, all the cars. They keep track of them. Most of these cars, there are somewhere published figures of how many were made. And you're right, Bill. Knowing how many are made is is definitely an important thing. Another important thing was the car popular from new. That helps a lot. That's right. 65 Mustangs, they made a million of them, was popular from new. That's still a good car that you can buy, relatively affordable, and drive it, have fun. That'll go up in value. Absolutely you know, you, true. I just uh, I just sold a 65 Shelby GT350. They made the 562. But what's the real attrition? I was doing some research today. And, uh, for instance, you look at the Mercedes Goldwing 300 SL. 1954 to 1957, they made exactly 1,400 of those cars. But to your point, Andy, we know that because of the club records and so forth, there are about 1,200 that exist today. So there's an attrition of 200 cars over the years back when they were just used cars. Cars. I remember those cars selling for $6,000 used in the early 70s, for instance. So. We just got one two weeks ago. I think a going probably, if not the most iconic car, one of the top 10 iconic car designs. No right? question about it. You know, speaking of going, there's just enough critical mass there. You've got a car where they made, you know, 1,400 examples, 1,200 left. What that means is there's some interest any point of time, any day of the year, you can find a Gullwing for sale. They're not littering the ground, but what that means is that collectors worldwide actually have the opportunity to not just dream, but if they have the resources, they can buy. And I think that makes a market. It makes a market when there is enough of something that it stays on people's radar. When there are only two or three examples in the world, people forget about them. Oh, I'll never get one of those. And by the way, I can't afford the, you know, the price of entry. But the Gullwing or the 300 SL Roadster, and you know, what are they going for now, Robert? Oh gosh, depends. I'd, I'll bet Andy's is a close to two million dollar car. If you want to yeah, push it, really interesting because you said that with that many made. But that's a special car. It's one of the first, and maybe it's one of the first that's. Is even still extant. And the original owner, what is the value of that provenance? I would say that provenance is worth an extra $250,000. Or more. Yes, absolutely. So when someone has a car for that long and it's a special car like that, I mean, think about the way it going looks and it came out in 1954. Amazing. Amazing. Andy, do you drive it? That's an interesting question. Do you drive it? Because there's two schools of thought with collector cars. One is... Drive the hell out of it and enjoy it, no matter what. And the other is, keep it, don't drive it. What if something happens to it? What if you get an accident? I actually like both those kinds of people. I admire more the people that drive them, but I still understand the people that don't drive them because they're nervous, they have it in a garage, they worried someone's going to hit them. It's their baby. What, what do you think about the guys who bring two of them to Laguna Seca and actually race those cars? That's even better. It's just like you said, and you said, what is it about these cars? Driving it, feeling it, driving around a track, driving on a mountain road. I mean, that's 
that's the excitement. It's really, sort of like of the it. difference between actually seeing the animal in the wild and seeing it stuffed and mounted in Otis Chandler's <laughs> collection. I mean, well, it used to be a mountain goat, but now it's just a piece of furniture. It's true. The only thing is that with a car that's sitting there, I kind of like that because if you have a car sitting there with no miles, yeah. there's always someone well, that will pay a crazy amount of money for it. Absolutely. And let's face it, even when they're not running, they are sculpture. They are. They're picture art. In 2004, a guy that lives in Malibu bought an Enzo from me. I delivered the car to him. And his wife was on the deck giving me the dirtiest look ever. So I said, what's with your wife? He said, she just can't imagine that I'm spending this much money on this car, but I have paintings on the wall that are worth that much. It's different. It's really a shame because he was on the board of directors of the L.A. County Museum of Art. And he said, Andy, tomorrow we're having a board of directors meeting. And my wife said, I can't show the car. Because these people will have no respect for Have you. no respect. They won't get it. Puts a car in the garage, and he calls me the next day. He said, Andy, you won't believe what happened. I said, what? He said, so we have these guys, these highbrow art guys there, and someone something said Ferrari. He said, I grabbed the guy. I took him in the garage, and he came running out, and he said, you guys have to see this car. We're doing an exhibit called Colors and Shapes starting next Monday. We want this car to be there. Because these cars? There are. These cars are art. A huge thanks to Andy Cohen for joining us on Cars That Matter. We'll see you next time to continue talking about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This is Robert Ross. This episode of Cars of the Matter was hosted by Robert Ross and Bill Curtis. Produced by Chris Porter. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Recorded at Kirko's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Our guest today was Andy Cohen. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.